And so as you continue to sit in silence, I'm going to read you a story. Uh, Notice what resonates for you. It may be a word, it may be a phrase, it may be the entire story itself. Uh, But just notice what comes up, what touches you, or what repels you as you listen to this story uh, in silence. Once upon a time in ancient China, a a poet visited a teacher. The teacher said, do you know the passage in which Confucius says, my friends, do you think I'm hiding things from you? In fact, I'm hiding nothing from you. It's just the same with this great matter of awakening. Do you understand this? I don't understand, said the poet. Later, they were taking a walk in the mountains where the air was filled with the scent of sweet olive blossoms. The teacher asked, do you smell the fragrance of the blossoms? The poet said, I do. The teacher said, you see, I'm hiding nothing from you. At that moment, the poet woke up. Two months later, he visited another teacher who greeted him and said, I'll die and you'll die and will end up burnt into two heaps of ashes. At that time, Where will we meet? The poet, uncertain, could not respond. Later, while on the road, he awoke from a nap and suddenly understood. He was changed forever. Often we enter this practice to find something that we think we lack. Something that will make us uh, a better version of ourselves, a less angry version, a less confused or fearful version. What if our awakening is Present here now. What is it uh, that each of us thinks we may be lacking that's hidden, that's necessary to find, to be whole and complete, to be awake and free? Do we imagine that enlightenment is finding something we don't already have? An experience that we imagine that we've heard about? What is it that we think we wake up to or from? 
Do we imagine an idealized Buddha who never got angry or uh, never felt uh, a suffering or painted heart? Uh, who didn't grieve? Who never felt fear? Is that what we're looking for in our practice? Is that what we imagine uh, enlightenment or awakening will reveal to us? Our poet smelled sweet olive blossoms and woke up. What did he wake up to? Or from? Is it any different than being asked, do we hear the sound of the passing traffic? There, there. Nothing is hidden. And do we wake up or do we miss it? Those things we call distractions that we want to push away, whether it's a cell phone going off during the sitting or someone moving restlessly beside us. What if what we thought was being hidden is revealed right then and there. I die, you die. At that moment, where shall we meet? And what is this moment of dying? To what? Into what? Have you ever found something valuable you thought was hidden, but was actually hidden in plain sight? What was that like? Does a particular sound become a moment of waking up? Or a moment of aversion? (coughs) What if these are moments of invitation? to look a little more deeply, to be a little more completely. That each and every moment reveals the hidden promise of our naturally awakened nature.
would it be for just a moment to imagine yourself lacking absolutely nothing? Nothing to get, nothing to gain, nothing to find. Absolutely nothing hidden. Welcome. It just always amazes me how many people show up for these things. Uh, you know, I was, I was thinking as I was digging my way out of um, what was not the promised Armageddon by the weather reporters, but there was a lot of snow. Um, I got to get out. I got to get out. They're going to be people that actually show up for this thing tonight. Wow. Um, so, you know, I had a couple of things on my mind tonight. Obviously, this, this story was one of them. Um, I come and I, I do the sitting before the, you know, before I do these talks. And uh, I usually sit with my eyes open. Uh, for a variety of reasons. I mean, the ways we know that we're alive are through the sense doors. Uh, and to, you know, close my eyes is to cut off a major sense door. Um, and it also makes the transition from sitting practice to the rest of our practice off the cushion um, a little more challenging, frankly. Uh, it makes sitting seem like something kind of special that we do that's that's really, you know, we need we need somehow to protect ourselves from what's going on around us. Um, so we close our eyes and, you know, we try to ignore sounds and um, that sort of thing. And it's, it's always um, interesting to me to, to watch reactions in a room when something unexpected happens. Like there were, somebody had their cell phone on in the sitting and there were, they, you know, they hadn't turned their their um, their volume off, and so they were getting sounded like they were getting emails, and um, you, you could just you know just looking down, which is how I usually sit, I could just see heads turning and you know faces scrunching up, and uh, it's like you know and and look we we all go through this right I mean I remember sitting in this room. Uh, well, it wasn't in this room, it was downstairs. Um, and fire engines would go by. And feeling annoyed at the fire engines going by. It's like, can't they do their job without disturbing my practice? I mean, don't they know we're meditating here? I mean, we all have that sort of, you know, just 
kind of craziness that goes on about the preciousness of my practice and how it just has to be. You know, we end up being like, like hothouse plants, right? We, we sort of make a nest with our, our cushions. I mean, if you go to IMS, it's familiar, it's famous for that. You know, you see people sitting in this nested area and makes makes you want to jump right in and, you know, <laughs> put your head down. It's really nice. Um, and and now they've got the whole Dharma Hall sealed off, so you can't hear anything outside. And it's temperature controlled, so it's always constant. You don't have to deal with, you know, 90 degree weather in the in the Dharma Hall or, you know, when the heat doesn't work quite as much and it's chilly. You know, it's, it's created this very, it's beautiful, but it's way too special. <laughs> way too special. Um, and so this, you know, it's like everything that's going on is our practice. There are no distractions. They're invitations to wake up. And two things happen, and if you watch, they happen very, very quickly. The first one is the bare registering of or ding, 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 or whatever the, you know, is going on. Or this, this thing, you know, doing whatever it was doing, this sort of, I mean, I felt it as quite aversive, actually. Um, and, um, and right at, there's just that completely clear intimacy with what we call sound. No, nobody here, no me hearing it, know me reacting to it that reverberates in the body which is in this almost timeless second moment followed by some piece of reactivity right which then is followed often by a very brief or very elaborate story right could be how inconsiderate they didn't turn the cell phone on don't they know the rules around here you know, I mean, even beginners should know, the, right? And, and, and we just go on and on and on with that. And sometimes we'll catch it. Usually it'll spin itself out. When we've heard the mind or seen the mind do that enough, there's almost a kind of level of boredom to it. Oh, there's that again. And you just back, right? That moment that precedes the reactivity, that's awakening. The moment that, that follows the going out of that reactiveness is what the Buddha refers to as cessation. He equates that to nirvana. So, right in, in, encapsulated in this is all that the Buddha is pointing to. What about the reactivity? Right? That's the invitation, again, to be with what's happening. Moment by moment by moment by moment. And that's what makes this practice on and on off the cushion have a very powerful continuity. Because I don't know about you, but I don't just have the reactive, aversive, 
longing, desiring, wanting life to be other way other than it is mind on the cushion. Have some of you noticed that that's active for you off the cushion as well? Right? Kind of important to know how to practice with that. Kind of important to see that as really valuable. You know, calling us to wake up, to be present. So, enough talk by me. What I'd like to hear from you is how you resonated to the story of this poet and this teacher. Um, and, you know, have you found things in your life that you thought were hidden that were not hidden, actually? Um, I kind of do that with my glasses once in a while, right? I'm sure some of you do, too, so I'm looking around the room. Um, or car keys, or, you know, how is it when you find something that you thought you'd lost? And then all of a sudden, there it was, kind of hidden in plain sight. You know, does it seem like a gift? Is it a moment for self-recrimination? You know, wondering about, oh, man, I'm almost 71. I might be losing my mind. I lost my glasses again. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, is there a sense of appreciation in that moment of waking up? Do you recognize it? Do you miss it? Um, what about this whole business of waking up? You know, there's so much emphasis on this practice and this work on feeling less stressed and being more attentive and, and um, that's great. Uh, that's not what the Buddha was suggesting is possible for us in, in real practice. Uh, he, he promised and pointed to regularly freedom. Living an awakened life. So what do, you, what do you think about that? What do you imagine about that? How's that, you know, sit for you? So those are the kinds of things that I'm asking you to think a little bit and reflect on a little bit and share as you're so inclined. So the floor is now open. I know, breaking the ice is really difficult. So, you know, we could always go back and just sit for the rest of the night. We could do a solid hour, and I'm sure somebody would be talking. So, <laughs> wonderful. To always put the keys in that spot, um, and I notice that when I don't do that, I get angry. You know, I'm like, "Why didn't I do what I was supposed to do?" Mm. And um, I think that's my challenge. Yeah. To free myself from the requirement to have to have the habit, um, and mm. to accept that sometimes I'm not going to do that. So how do you practice with that? I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> uh, when it comes up, yeah. I think when it comes up and I have, you know, said, well, 
no wonder I didn't find those because they weren't where they were supposed to be. Um, I guess just to accept that I eventually did find them or didn't and they will show up. So how do you do the acceptance thing? I guess I sit and think about what I maybe learned from that situation anyway. Mm. You know? That I did mm. get some freedom from it for a bit. Mm. And the world didn't fall apart. Right? For yeah. me, maybe. Yeah. That's great. So. That's great. Um, so you just mentioned one of the key points to this is to stay with it. You know? Time and situation permitting, you know, that you haven't found the keys when you're already like 15 minutes late and have to dash out the door, you know. So then you're attentive to dashing out the door so you don't slip on the ice before you get to the car, you know, which is often where we, you know, get to. We're ahead of ourselves and miss the ice under our feet, uh, which we're always kind of skating on anyway. Um, so to stay with that, you know, to, to stay with the, how the body feels when it's aroused in that way. You know, and often the, the, what'll show up is the fear that's underneath. You know, the fear-anger thing is really close. Um, and it is interesting that you also say, well, wow, the, the world still keep, seems to keep turning in the same direction you know, um, after I find the keys. And while they were lost, didn't seem to stop turning, right? Which, if it did, of course, we'd have a whole different set of issues. So, uh, But to stay with that long enough, that's, that's what we refer to as insight. Staying with something long enough so, it's, so what's actually happening is seen clearly. And you also noticed impermanence. Right? There's a dynamic thing that's going on. There's the, the body being aroused, the mind, you know, doing its, use the word habitual, doing its habitual conditioned storytelling. Right? And then there's the relief of finding the keys, or the keys finding you, depending on how we want to think about that. Right? Uh, and then, you know, what wisdom comes after that? There's this flowing, very dynamic, very interesting phenomena that's going on. And you also may notice that you're not doing any of it. To me, that's one of the most interesting things. You didn't make a choice to misplace keys. And the moment that you found them, you, didn't, you couldn't have predicted that. You didn't say, well, let's see, I've been at this nine minutes and 15 seconds, and the next 15 seconds I'm going to find my keys. Right? It was like, there they were. You didn't do that. Something did that, but you didn't, you know. The story that was spinning, you didn't say, okay, I'm going to choose for the mind to tell this same story that it's told since I was probably a kid in one way or another. Right? There's, there's a not you involved here. And in that way, it's not personal. 
there's a there's an almost mechanical you know can it's like the there's the machinery and you know the 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 button gets pushed by losing the keys and the machinery goes <laughs> and starts pumping out the same widgets it's been pumping out for like decades right it's me it's mechanical right and as and as that can be seen the the whole thing begins to shift a bit and you're noticing the shift as things calm down and the fire goes out. And you also noted, oh, the fire's out. That's cessation. Now, often we have this idea that if we just do the right things, we'll get the, you know, if, if I just... Um, I mean, you mentioned a couple of them. I forget what they were, but you know, like I've got to, I've got to let go of this, or I've got to have acceptance, or whatever. The acceptance piece comes as a natural outgrowth of learning to attend what's actually happening and seeing what's actually happening. For example, seeing you didn't choose any of that. And if there's no one choosing it, who is there to blame? If there was no body doing something wrong in the first place, where's the, where's the crime to be punished? But that has to be seen, that has to be experienced, and that's the value of staying with something like you described. Now I've spent, you know, I've spent a chunk of time with this because it's a, it's a key example. You know, we all have this kind of experience. You know, maybe it's somebody who uh, shows up 20 minutes late to an appointment but doesn't call us. You know, maybe it's one of our kids who's supposed to be home at a certain time and doesn't call and they're not home after an hour and you know our engines are starting to rev and when we greet them at the door that makes them wonder why they came home in the first place you know and since we've all been the kid in that position we all know what that's like right? so when we're doing this practice we're not just practicing for ourselves we're practicing for our kids, our parents, our colleagues, our friends, our siblings. I mean, that's where the idea of a, the practicing for all beings is actually concrete. You know, if, if I'm doing this practice, at the very least, I become much less likely to injure myself or somebody else. That's a beautiful thing. And that's a practice that I, yeah, I do it for me. Damn right it's selfish. But it's the kind of good selfish, you know, that is relational and is taking care of the other person in a non-intrusive, non-controlling way. My job is not to make my kids show up when they say they're going to be there. 
My job is to be fully available and awake and not on fire when they show up. It increases the likelihood of speaking with wisdom and clarity and decreases the likelihood of speaking with judgment out of fear. And that's, uh, that applies to every relationship that, that we encounter, whether it's with the car keys and consequently with ourselves or with it, it's our next door neighbor who, you know, piled their snow half on my driveway, right? Whatever it is, it's the same practice. So what else about waking up and finding things that are hidden and that sort of stuff? I took a little different take um, when the story presented itself with the olive, olive branch. I took the fact of that moment of something that's always been there and all of a sudden you notice it so clearly with such a beauty, it's like it never existed before and now mm. you see it fresh mm -hmm. with a bare, awake, bare awareness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's what I took from that yeah. part of the story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and available all the time, right? I mean, it could be in the next shovel of snow, you know, or it could be the horn honking, you know, those, it's like the more we are available to that, the more life is going to wake us up like that. And nothing hidden. Yeah. Thanks. So I had, uh, is this on? So I had a similar response to when the poet was just exposed to nature, mm. the olive branch by itself. And there's no, you, you would never... Uh, project an intention on nature to hide anything from you, right? And I took it back then to the earlier part of the story when the poet was talking to the teacher and the teacher said, I'm not hiding anything from you. So, you know, maybe we think that people are hiding things <laughs> from us or they actually have the power to do that. Mm. Or we're not seeing that and they can control it. But anyway, it's, <laughs> it's caught up with thoughts which when you're in a relationship with somebody wouldn't be there when you're just confronted with nature. Mm. So I kind of took that back of just, uh, you know, I think a lot of you think things are hidden from you. It's just in your mind mm. that you think that. Mm -hmm. And they're not hidden. And maybe you have no intention to hide anything. Maybe you have no intention right. at all. Yeah. I think people project a lot of intentions on other people yeah. that aren't there. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I got. Yeah, lots of intentions, lots of images, expectations, all, all kinds of things. And um, that sort of cloud this, this direct, you know, encounter, whether it's with the sweet olive blossoms or it's just this moment with you and me, you know, um, and and how how completely effortless that is 
You know, that, that moment of seeing, of hearing, of touching, smelling, tasting, seeing. It just, I mean, it is so ordinary. And so inexplicably amazing at the same time. Yeah, yeah, nothing hidden, nothing to hide. This overlay of self that isn't there. Yeah. Thank you. Mm. Um, so what I thought was interesting about the, the story you read, the, the koan, was um, so, he has, so he has an awakening when he smells the sweet olive blossoms. The olive blossoms. Yeah. Then, then at some later point in the story, he's confused. And then he has another awakening. So I thought that was interesting because usually in these, uh, in these koans, the, the person has, has a grand awakening and then they're done. Right. Right. But yeah. it seems like in this case, he has, I don't know, two, like maybe they, they could be called realizations about, mm-hmm. about life. Or, but they're not. Is that, like, is that, is that the point of... Um, like, it, it does make me wonder why in the story he has two awakenings. Maybe the, it's to suggest that um, these types of, of realizations are not inaccessible to most people. That's kind of like what I'm taking away from mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. That, that, you know, it's like, it seems like he goes from, you know, like, like he's he's more or less, um, f- well, first he's not a student of he's a he's a poet he's a poet so he's not a, a student of meditation right but he does have these awakenings so it makes me wonder if that's kind of part of the message of the story, mm. like like it's more for a layperson that you can, mm. you know that's kind of like how I'm receiving it. Mm. Mm. Yeah, why not? I don't know. <laughs> it, it, is that? <laughs> I guess there's no correct interpretation. You keep looking for me to, to me for the answer, don't you, John? <laughs> You're the teacher. I, of course, I want you to explain it to me. Nothing hidden. <laughs> <laughs> and I won't just leave you hanging at the end of the olive branch either. Um, so, John used the word koan. How many of you are not familiar with that word and what it means? Okay. You know, in... in uh, in very ancient China, there was a um, an emerging tradition that uh, where people wrote down the encounters they had with their teachers that shook them awake, and those began to get recorded. And um, there are thousands of them in the literature. Um, some of them very very short, and some of them longer. But they all have to do with an encounter between two people where one wakes up. And um, in the Chinese Zen and Japanese and Korean Zen traditions, that's felt that waking up is felt to be exactly the same as the Buddha's awakening. So this, this story comes from one of those collections.
And my co-teacher in Connecticut often has remarked on how these stories seem to be so neat. You know, there's the encounter. You know, the, the student comes to the teacher and says, my mind is not at rest. You know, I'm suffering mightily. Please put my mind at rest. And the teacher says, well, show me your mind that's not at rest. And the person goes off rather puzzled and, you know, comes back some extended time later and says, I've looked everywhere for it. I can't find it any place. And the teacher said, see, I've put it to rest for you. And, of course, they all lived happily ever after is sort of the indication. Um, it is interesting that this story has this person having two awakenings in fairly close proximity. And there's a fairly famous, well, no. There are most teachers, most people, forget the teacher thing, most human beings have multiple awakenings. Often we don't recognize them. I mean, we're waking up numerous times during the day, but the conditioned mind it will scold itself so quickly for having drifted off while doing the dishes or, you know, run the car up on the curbing when a moment of inattention or, you know, complain about the alarm clock that, you know, jolts us awake, that we miss all of these moments of the spontaneous waking up. Much of practice is learning to value those, to actually acknowledge them, and to see that it's happening with great frequency. And there are those times when there are these sudden, fairly significant shifts that we all have sooner or later. Um, many people can describe them in childhood. You know. um, the idea that we wake up once and forever, I mean, I, I don't know anybody that's done that. If you look at the suttas and the, you know, the way the Buddha is talked about, you know, that he's, he's a human being. He's a human being. And, you know, when he got angry and woke up out of that, I wonder what that was like. You know, when he was really deep in grief about his two closest disciples, his, you know, long, long, lifelong companions in the Dharma dying. And people saying, Sangha members saying to him, wow, you seem upset about this. Like, you know, you're a Buddha. Why are you upset? And he said, my longtime companions in the Dharma are dead. I really miss them. Now, is that said from an unawakened mind? So again, it's this question of what does waking up actually mean? And what triggers it? How do we recognize it? And how do we integrate it into our lives? Someone can have the, you know, sort of classic awakening experience 
and not be able to integrate that. I mean, it's not uncommon for people new to practice to have a real opening and then think, wow, this is it. I got it. And off they go. Uh, and usually they don't have the... They don't have any way to integrate that into their the rest of their living. These awakening experiences are worth only what they contribute to us being awake in our lives. And for some people, awakening comes, you know, very slowly and gradually. And then there's some clarity of, you know, like was said earlier, oh, what used to just really piss me off doesn't happen anymore. You know, where I used to get in trouble with relationships really predictably doesn't seem to be happening in the same way. Wow. It's almost like uh, realizing we've awakened after the fact <laughs> in a certain kind of way. Right. Or there can be this, you know, major shift. And the need, the necessity to integrate that into our life. Either way, and many people don't have a sort of mind-blowing enlightenment experience. I think it's frankly irrelevant. The real question is, am I awake now? What happens when I wake up out of the aversion that I didn't choose? What happens then? How do I enter that moment with that awakening? You know, when, I, when I'm you know, in a conflict with my partner and there's this little shift, this little opening, do I ignore it? and just plows, you know, unskillfully and hurtfully ahead? Or is the recognition there, oh, <laughs> there's the clarity. Can I slow down long enough to let the mind tilt towards that clarity? Or is there that grasping of wanting to you know maintain being right and needing to prove and needing to prove it you know the biggest problem is not that we don't wake up the biggest problem is that we ignore when we wake up and our conditioning drives us into turning from that into this other stuff you know, so that's, it's sort of like keep an eye out for that. And if nothing else, notice the mind's inclination to choose suffering. Because that's what it's doing. It's like we've hit this fork in the road. You know, it's like <laughs> God said to the Jews, I offer you life and death. 
knowing just how dense us human beings were, God said, and by the way, I'd really urge you to choose life. You know? But guess what? No, 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 no. Maybe later. Right now, I'm going for suffering because it just, you know, it gets, it floats my boat. Right? Wow. That's crazy. That's crazy. And every single one of us, and I'm, every single one of us, get caught in that. You know, the Buddha said we have to understand suffering. We have to stand under it. We have to experience it. We also have to experience that moment when the mind chooses suffering over freedom. That's often a critical aspect of our practice. So, so far, the the things to take home are begin to notice when you actually wake up and what happens. And notice when the mind habitually conditioned to choose suffering over freedom. That'll keep your practice, you know, lively for a while, I think. What else? Yeah. Just two points of observation. Yeah. Um, one is, uh, you know, despite the fact that it's not hidden, uh, that it's right in front of us, doesn't make it easier to find. You bet. I mean, the story provides an example where he wakes up sure. at the smell of an olive branch. But I wake up daily to that, and then I go back to sleep. Yeah. And then the other point is, in the second awakening, he says that he changes forever. They didn't say he changes, and then he picks up a text on his phone and forgets about it. They say he changes forever. Right. And I find that in my practice, that change is impermanent. Mm. It's more like a muscle. You learn to practice, you apply yourself, and if you forget to apply yourself, then the change dissipates and disappears. Mm -hmm. And it isn't something like you reach a level and suddenly something is brand new forever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, And... You know, there's this, this saying about sudden awakening and gradual cultivation. Or gradual cultivation, sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. I do think that, you know, things as, as our practice deepens, there are things that shift that don't shift back again. You know, there are, there are ways, you know, it's like the in child development, it's at a certain age, if you show a child a half-full uh, quart jar and a half-full pint jar, they're not, they're not, they can't tell the difference. They're just both half-full. It's the same. At some point, that shifts. There's a shift in the brain. And no longer will that kid not know the difference between a half a quart of chocolate milk and a half a pint of chocolate milk. That's changed, and it can't change back again. 
The same is with this practice. There are shifts that occur, in, uh, and I don't know how to explain them, uh, because I think fundamentally they're not explainable. Um, we've all had the experience where we've seen something in one way, and then that's changed, and we never see it the same way again. Or, for example, we've been passionately interested about something. And maybe it's, it's really been a passion for decades. And then all of a sudden, it's not. And no matter how much I try and get myself reinterested in that, doesn't happen. Something else has, has taken its place. Or maybe the need for that has just dropped away. And it doesn't show up again. And in terms of our practice and our awakening, it's this, yes, noticing and staying with the shifts that do occur and knowing that one moment of clarity, an ordinary person is a Buddha. One moment of deluded thought, a Buddha is once again an ordinary person. You know, and it really is, am I awake now? And I also think that there are aspects of our personality that change, but continue to be challenging, you know, for maybe our whole life. I mean, I know that, that uh, I know that my, my temper and the level of anger that I, that I've, that I had is simply not the same as it was. Um, <clears throat> do I also know that, yeah, the fire can flare up from time to time, and I need to be careful around that. You know, when I smell, smell it start to smolder, right? I need to pay attention to that. And so it's this balance of, yeah, things have changed, and... Don't check your common sense at the door. And that's kind of what you're pointing to. You know, pay attention to what's happening and don't lose sight of that because that's where the wisdom is. Thanks. Yeah. My question has changed. Um, I'm not even sure what it was. Um, so many things have been covered and it's so helpful. Thank you. Um, the idea of resistance and what you said about having early experiences where you didn't have the container mm -hmm. to process mm -hmm. is something I related to. I'm thinking about the resistance as a form of self-protection. Mm -hmm. um, and I was actually noticing that during the snowstorm when I had the whole day to myself to be mindful. And I noticed <laughs> like three quarters of the day had gone by and I don't even know what I did. I mean, yeah. it was, um, but I was able to sort of say to myself, you know what, I think I don't really want to be mindful. And when I did that, I noticed there was an opening. Yeah. And just to keep being with that resistance as a form of mindfulness. Yeah. Um, that yeah. was actually very, um, very helpful. And then I think also, the 
the piece around that sense of um, not having the container, or at least thinking I don't have the container, because mm. there are times when I feel the fear of, um, this is going to sound a little crazy, but maybe not, um, disappearing. Mm. Like the fear of, I see when I'm fully in this space, that mm. the me who I think I am is no longer mm -hmm. me. And that's, that's, there's a fear around there. Sure. And there's a fear of, um, <coughs> of that being a, an, a, that being a st steady state too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That I'm gonna, oh, that's who I'm gonna be now. It's this mm -hmm. thing I don't even know who I am. Mm. Um, and so that for me, there, there's a lot of tension around that that I'm just mm -hmm. noticing. Yeah. Yeah, I loved your story of the day of mindfulness. Uh, uh, one of the major teachers in my lineage, Robert Aiken. Uh, lived in Hawaii for most of his teaching career. And uh, somebody said, oh, you've got a day to the beach, a day at the beach. What a wonderful time to practice meditation and be awake. And, and he said, oh, God forbid, I'm just going to the beach. You know? uh, so, uh, and it was really interesting when you, when, you know, the idea, you saw the idea of the sort of, I have to do this, you know. And then your life just opened up, right? I mean, really, that's really lovely. Um, the, you know, the, the thing about disappearing is, is not all that uncommon. Um, and it's, you know, it's different for everybody in terms of its origin. So I'm just going to talk a little generically because I don't know you. Um, I know that when uh, people are doing a really, uh, a, a longer term concentration practice, um, like on, on retreats, for example, they're just focusing on the breath. And, <clears throat> and you know, some people have this experience not just on retreat practice so but they're really attending to the breath and and when that happens as the body begins to relax and the breath finds its own natural rhythm it really begins to to get very subtle and it can get so subtle that it seems to disappear altogether that's an invitation for the attention, for the concentration to go a little deeper, right? Because it's become so subtle, it requires a different intimacy with it. But people will often go, <gasps> you know, breathe in because the, I mean, literally like that, um, because there's this fear there that their breath is gone, right? And it's not, it's, it really is touching a level of fear that's, that's quite, well, the word primitive, yeah, really, primitive comes to mind, but that has such a pejorative feel to it. It's, it's, it's really old. It's really deep. 
Um, you know, it, it's almost at the level developmentally of, of um, when a baby takes that first breath after it comes out of the mother, you know? Um, I, I don't know what that infant experiences when that happens. I do know what it's like to wait for that to happen. It's really scary. It's really scary. And that leads me to, you know, that level, you know, a fear of not being able to get the breath. What we come to trust is that somehow life breathes that baby. Somehow life breathes that next breath that something in us doesn't trust. And as that happens, you know, a few times, it really can, can shift the way we trust now, is the next breath promised to anybody? No. Absolutely not. And yet, life seems to be moving in this unpredictable, not understandable, doing itself way of which we're intimate with. We are that. That's one piece. The other piece is that, you know, we spend our whole lives uh, being convinced we're somebody. In all kinds of ways. I mean, it's, oh, look at little Doug. Isn't he sweet? Oh, look at little Doug. Wouldn't he shut up? Oh, look at little, he's so smart. Oh, you know, blah, 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 blah. Right from the beginning, which is important. You know, if we don't have that, that sense of being someone in relationship and as an independent being as we grow, if we don't have that strong attachment, all kinds of unfortunate stuff happens. You know, we've got diagnoses for how that evolves into child, adolescent, and adulthood, and it's really, really difficult. Right? So our whole lives, we've got this deeply embedded belief and physical sense, one, that I'm my body, and two, that there's really a thing here called a me. And almost all of our life is self-referential. You know, it's, it's a story written by me, you know, directed by me, as Larry's, Larry Rosenberg is fond, fond of saying, starring me, right? Uh, the advertising company is staffed by me, right? Preferably the audience for all of this is me, right? And, and oh my God, now I'm actually seeing that it may be not what I thought it was, yeah, 
when we get a view into that, it's going to shake us. Right. So, and, you know, Sigmund Freud was once interviewing a, an artist in Europe for analysis, and the artist was really concerned about, you know, what this would mean to his art and his family, and, you know, basically, will I still be recognizable? And Freud said to him, yeah, your friends will still recognize you. You know, after all your analysis, don't worry, your friends will still recognize you. And there's this idea, that, and it really is an idea, that if there's, a, if there's an awakening to this non-substantial, you know, we can't call it, a, the Buddha said, if you say there's a me, it's a mistake. If you say there's no me, it's a mistake. A lot of help, right? Um, and as, we, as our practice begins to reveal this stuff to us, it'll get edgy. And our friends will still recognize us. So to have the, you know, to even label the thought, having a believed thought that this will kill me, having a believed thought that I won't survive this, having a believed thought that I'll disappear. You know, if nothing else, grounds you in the fact that there's something that's labeling the believed thought, which means you're still around. You know? So to begin to, again, to use that, that fear, that, that idea about what's going to happen as a way to be present to what's actually happening. That's really the, the invitation in this practice, to keep coming to seeing when we're caught in the dream. And really seeing that and letting the awareness, the attention, turn back to what's actually true and happening. Now, this isn't about denying the dream or trying to get rid of the dream at all. That's just more separation and judgment, usually repression to one degree or another. It's allowing the whole thing to coexist in a field that reflects what comes and goes. You know, in the Thai force tradition, they often say, there are only two things going on, awareness and objects of awareness. After that, not much you need to know. And I would suggest that they also point to a step that's, you know, even pre pre precedes that or is before that. You know, it's that place where we ask the question, what is there when there is no thinking? And rest at the end of that question. Can we say there's nothing going on? without language, without calling it something? Is it a thing? What is there when there is no thinking? And then just rest in that silence at the end of that and be that. And that's another way to come into the same thing. So we got a couple of minutes.
Anybody want to have a last shot? Go for it. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, your uh, story brought up a couple of things, and also this last uh, uh, discussion that you had about, or that you talked about um, uh, fear. And um, mm. for the story part, for myself, it uh, was interesting because of the sort of two awakenings, but also, um, again, really emphasizing that the root of uh, our suffering and our inability to awaken is separation mm -hmm. and the delusion that there is at separation. So hence with the olive blossom mm -hmm. and also with um, will we meet. We, we have never not been connected. We are all interconnected, interdependent. Right. So then coming to the last point about um, the fear that we have such as with the breath or, or um, mm -hmm. life or any situation, ultimately it's that inability to let go, that grasping mm -hmm. that is the foundation of all fear. And um, would, you, would you agree with that or is that something that... Uh, uh, yeah, I think what I would add is that the grasping is involuntary. You but, know, through, but through mindfulness, we can become aware of that, and it's that recognition that ultimately makes it... The, yeah, uh, you know, the, the, it's interesting that if I... If somebody's left the burner on under an iron skillet, and I go over and I pick it up, and I haven't noticed that the burner's on, and it's like, you know, immediately I'll let go of that, right? I'm not going to hold on to that hot iron skillet as my hand starts to smoke and I'm complaining about who didn't turn the fire on or why was I so mindless as to not notice it was on, right? There's the letting go. Two things about that. That letting go is nothing that I'm doing. It's a, it's a spontaneous, wise recognition that this is better than this. What happens after that is the suffering that follows the pain. It doesn't mean my hand's going to stop hurting all of a sudden just because it's let go. The story that then can follow that letting go can be loaded with suffering. Emotionally, we're not as smart as our hand is, as our physical hand or our body is. It immediately wakes up and lets go. We'll tend to hang on to that hot iron skillet emotionally, our anger, our fear, you know, our demand that life, that, that you meet my expectation of how you ought to be and don't even re recognize the pain that, that is created by that demand, that grasping. And so yes, what brings us to 
that happening more frequently than that is our willingness to be with that. Not trying to do that, but being with that until there's a natural letting go. When we're letting go, there's still separation. When we're opening the hand of grasping, there's still separation. What we usually call letting go is aversion in disguise. There's an enormous difference between this and that. And, and that's a really critical piece of our practice because when we see this deep pain, our initial reaction is almost always that. That's not the letting go that, that this gentleman's referring to, nor is it what the Buddha points to. We stay with that. We, we really experience, stand under that pain and suffering. And it's in that that a natural letting go happens. What that is is just the natural exercise of wisdom that's not different from the physical exercise of wisdom. But we have a different kind of conditioning around the mental, emotional grasping. And that's what our practice is aimed at. Yeah, just quickly. So uh, um, the primitive reflex mm. that the body responds to when it feels the pain of right. grasping hot something is yep. what makes it is to protect the body. Right. But the example that you gave of your anger and the heat and the temper that has changed, but that is the same kind of thing, that you can continue holding on to that and continue living your life in that same way, but ultimately, through that awareness each time, through your practice, through your mindfulness, that you develop that capacity to let go of that response and yeah, see, I, don't, I, think, I think we'll come at this from a couple of different directions, and it may just be semantics. Okay. Uh, but I don't believe that's something we do. I just, I don't, I don't that, my experience is not how that happens. And that turns, it ends up turning our practice into a goal-oriented practice. And so I, I'm saying that we just may be coming at the same thing from two different directions. But I'm, I'm saying this, I think more generally, that there is an intentional doing part of this practice that is really important. I mean, we don't learn how to live in, in these ways without holding ourselves attentively and intentionally to practice. The, the, the downside to that is that it often leaves awakening or freedom as something to be gained or something to be accomplished down the road someplace. Becomes a carrot on the stick that we never quite catch. That we, that we don't deal with the, this deep core belief that I'm not good enough, and if I just do this enough and get free enough and realized enough, that I'll really be okay. So while on the one hand, our practice has to be very intentional and quite rigorous around noticing mind states, 
around noticing how we're reflected back to ourselves in relationship, about knowing how to work with the edge of our practice wherever it shows up, wherever it shows up. And the giveaway on that is, am I, ups am I angry? Am I scared? Am I confused? That's the edge of our practice. And we've got to attend to that. On the other hand, usually these two things have been separated. We do all this, and at some point we'll wake up and be free. I frankly think that that's a misunderstanding of how this whole thing evolves. We do our practice, and we discover that freedom has happened that we're not grasping in the same way that we used to. We're not getting stuck in the same way that we used to. And we may just notice that in little bits, but that catches our interest, and we watch for it. We become more attentive to it, naturally. Okay. So that, that these things happen in a very organic way, and we're also saying, you don't gotta wait for 30 or 40 years of practice to wake up. Why wait? Do it now. It's available right here, right now, in the sound of that fire engine, in the smell of the sweet olive blossoms, in the, the question of, we're all going to die. Where are we going to meet each other? It's the invitation to the mind to wake up and know that it's already awake. Okay? Don't wait till you've had 30 or 40 years of practice to be able to appreciate that. Okay? All right. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.